This morning, I'll continue considering uh, the Ten Commandments in the life of the Christian. Basically, the question is, should Christians obey all ten of the Ten Commandments? And if the answer is yes, and I'm answering yes, what should that look like? So it's one thing to say, yes, the Ten Commandments, and it's another thing to say, well, what should that look like? Now, Scripture clearly teaches that the law of God convicts all men and all women of all nations of being lawbreakers. Scripture uh, does not teach that only people that have come in contact with the Bible are sinners. It teaches that everyone, since the fall of Adam and Eve, is a sinner, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is the transgression of the law. So there is a sense in which, and Scripture teaches this, the law is internal to us, but since the fall, it condemns us all, and we are polluted in our human nature, this side of the fall into sin, and we're not able to rightly interpret that which is within us, and so some cultures do a better job of it, some families do a better job of it based on training and things like that, but nobody obeys the internal law perfectly. Law was written on Adam and Eve's heart, we've seen, in studying the original creation of our first parents. They had what uh, we call original righteousness. They had this ability to look out at something, food, let's say. Well, that's a bad example because they looked at food and sin, didn't they? Uh, uh, let's say a beautiful tree. Now, that's not a good example because it was a beautiful tree. Uh, let's say a bird. There you go. They are able to look at a bird, a, uh, a cardinal, let's say, and and interact with it in light of the internal furniture that they were endowed with by their creator and always conclude the right thing about it and worship God in light of that creature. Uh, creatures, by the way, are in part given to us that we might learn something about God and praise him for it. We're not able to do that now at least not consistently, and therefore we're sinners, and they fell into the state that we're all born into, guilty sinners, uh, violators of this internal law. Of course, if you add the Bible to your human experience, you're also violators of, of that which is contained in Scripture. So after looking at the Remember the Edenic trees? We had like four sermons on the Edenic trees. Uh, we looked at the trees, and we looked at uh, the fall into sin, the creation and the trees and the fall into sin. And then we started to notice some things from Genesis 4, which is after the pronouncement of the curse, all the way to uh, Exodus 20. I said there is an instinct we all have, and I think it's a good one, that when you judge the actions and attitudes of the people from Genesis 4 all the way to Exodus 20, which Exodus 20 is the first formal public uh, promulgation of the Ten Commandments in Scripture. Uh, But even before you get to Exodus 20, you're already judging these people, good or bad, based on a grid, an ethical standard. And it usually that standard is the Ten Commandments. And I think that's a, I think that's a good instinct. And I think we've learned it uh, properly when we do that. So we looked at that. We looked at the fact that even though the Ten Commandments weren't uh, formally and publicly announced to God's people, 
uh, until Exodus 20, the, the, the account that re- is recounted for us in Exodus 20, it predates its utility or usefulness. It, it's actually judging people before that. And the reason is, Paul says it in Romans 2, uh, everyone has this thing called the law written on their hearts. Well, then we looked at ancient Israel and the formal promulgation of the Ten Commandments on stone tablets at Mount Sinai and the unique function and central function of those Ten Commandments in the life of ancient Israel or Old Covenant Israel. And then, I think last week, we started to look at the promise of the New Covenant in the prophets of the Old Testament. And we concentrated on Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, 27 and follow, or 25 through 27, last week. And the reason I did that is because that which the prophets are promising that would come about in the future is that which believers in Christ now enjoy. Now there's could be some pushback because the language of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, primarily Jeremiah, seems to limit the promises of the new covenant to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the language that's used. So what I did as well is I said, okay, let's consider these promises, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, but let's go wider in the prophets to see about the days in, uh, in the future that they're writing about and the pr- these promises in light of other things in the prophets, namely that when the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, comes, he brings light both to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. I did that to prove to you that whatever the promises are of this new covenant, it's for Jews and Gentiles in the present Here's an old word that old people, old theologians used to use. In the present dispensation, in the present outworking economy of God's plan of salvation, the promise of the new covenant is for both believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and that's what I tried to prove last week. Now, the specific language that I had mentioned last week that we need to drill down deeper into is found in Jeremiah 31 33, and we're going to look at Jeremiah 31, 33 primarily today. I will write my law on their hearts, and I will put it, that is my law, in their minds. So having tried to prove last week that the promises of the new covenant are for both believing Jews and Greeks, this week we're going to look at this key text, and here it is. But this is the covenant that I will make with a house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, last week we looked at the three or four major promises of this covenant, just kind of an overview. And then we looked at Ezekiel 36, and the same covenant is promised in different words, but it's the same covenant till promise. And we looked at various other places in the prophets to show you that the prophets are talking about, when they're talking about the new covenant, they're talking about the inaugurated covenant by the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of the eternal 
covenant, the blood of the new covenant in Luke chapter 22. Now let's make some observations because we're just looking at verse 33. First, notice that the law under the new covenant, we could say the law for Christians is God's law, right? I will put my law. It's not saying I will put uh, you know, the laws of the United States on the people's hearts, but my law. So God, it's God's law, something he both authors, and we could say uh, originates or possesses, it comes from him, somehow connected to God. I will put my law, those words are very important there, in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now this phrase, my law, how are we going to understand it? Well, when you're trying to do Bible study, one of the things you do is you ask yourself, okay, this phrase, my law, does Jeremiah use it elsewhere? And would that help us understand what he's talking about? Well, Jeremiah does. We're not going to turn there. Uh, But he does in Jeremiah 6.19, Jeremiah 9.13, Jeremiah 16.11, Jeremiah 26.4, Jeremiah 31.33, our text, and Jeremiah 44.10. So he uses the phrase one, two, three, four, five, six, six times wish it was seven, because then it would be the number of perfection, and we can make a big deal about that. But he uses it six times. Uh, And in these contexts, it's described as something that can be heard, my law can be heard, something that was set before the old covenant people of God, I'm putting together all those texts in my own language, something that is equated with God's voice, something that can be broken, something that when broken is considered as forsaking God and committing idolatry, something that can be listened to, something that can be transgressed, something that will be written on the heart, and then finally, something that was set before the fathers, which would be the fathers of of the Israelites, namely the ones who received the law of God in the first generation after the exodus. So it's very clear that Jeremiah's use of this phrase, my law, when he uses it, he's referring to an objective standard or uh, of known and expected conduct when he uses the phrase. I don't think ancient readers would have gone, what in the world is he talking about, my law? I actually think ancient readers and hearers of these words of Jeremiah would have known exactly what he's talking about. Now, whatever this law is, we haven't defined it yet, we know that it's God's, my law, and that it had already been revealed to God's old covenant people at the time of the writing of Jeremiah. Because in the five five other uses, it's very clear, Jeremiah is using this phrase to indicate something that's already been revealed to the people of ancient Israel in the past. So it was already an existing law, whatever it is. The second observation... Notice, second, that the law of God uh, under the new covenant will be put in the mind and written on the heart of all the beneficiaries of this covenant. So everybody that benefits from the covenant has this law written on their heart, put in their mind. That's a metaphorical language for this is an act of divine 
power and grace that terminates in the souls of people. It's a work of recreation, we might say. It's a work of renovation. Uh, it's a work of, the old guys use the word re- reparation, probably not a good word to use in our cultural context, uh, but the, the repairing of something that needs repairing, the heart, the mind, synonymous terms there, the soul, something's wrong with us. What do we need? We need a work of grace on our hearts. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have this from above life that's, that's uh, caused to exist in your souls. This is the language of renovation here. This promised blessing of the new covenant will be enjoyed by the whole community. Everybody that's truly saved has this same work done within them. Uh, For instance, verse 34 of Jeremiah 31 reads this, No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother say, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. For everyone in this that benefits from this covenant will know the Lord. Now, you know, when you say to somebody, Do you know the Lord? Do you mean, do you know that there is a Lord that exists? Do you mean that? No. You, you already assume the person you're talking to believes that God is. When you say, do you know the Lord? You mean, are you saved? Do you have a saving knowledge of God's only way of salvation? Namely, the incarnate Son of God for us and for our salvation. I think that's what he's talking about here. Not knowing about, but it, are you in communion with God through Christ? Ultimately, they won't say that within the community, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is a promise of the new covenant. Everybody that that benefits from this covenant being formally enacted in space and time and history on the earth through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of them have their sins forgiven. Now, every brand of Christian that I know that has studied this issue Uh, believes that uh, the new covenant brings the forgiveness of sins. But what I'm saying, it also brings for everyone in it this internal work of God on the heart or mind, Uh, this work of renewing our sensitivity to the law of of God. Now, somebody might be saying, yeah, but I'm not very sensitive to the fourth commandment because I don't believe it like you you Puritans do. You're at church. You know, when you got saved, did somebody have to put a bullet to your head, a bullet, a gun to your head and say, you need to go to church. And if you don't, it was just like, you know, duh, of course I should. Now, it wasn't only, it wasn't until later that you realize there's, there's controversy about this, this one commandment, which we'll get to in some year. But notice here, the forgiveness of sins is universal. The law written on the heart is universal within this, the community that ends up receiving the benefits of this covenant, which we saw last week, the blood of the everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13, 20. It's referring to this covenant. Isaiah uses the language everlasting covenant, so it's the same covenant. It was going to go to Jews and Greeks, so whatever the forgiveness of sins means, everyone that receives the benefits of this covenant gets the forgiveness of sins, Everyone that receives the benefits of this covenant also gets this internal heart surgery performed upon them by God. Everyone. 
The third observation. Notice that God is both the author of the law itself. My law. God's the author. And the one who writes it on the heart. This is very important. Remember I said this is divine cardiology going on here. This is the divine cardiologist, the divine heart doctor. It's God, the Lord, the covenant Lord of ancient Israel. He's the author of the law itself and the one who writes it on the heart. In effect, God says, I'll put and write my law on the minds and hearts of my new covenant people, all of them. I'm going to do this same work on all of those who end up being the beneficiaries of this covenant inaugurated formally and historically by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those are three observations. These observations provide some groundwork for us um, that's necessary for identifying this basic fundamental law of God under the new covenant because I haven't identified what it is yet. I said, whatever it is, it's already revealed. It could be transgressed. If you broke it, it's a form of, of uh, idolatry. Uh, it had already been placed before the fathers. I will write my law on their hearts. Uh, I haven't defined it yet. Okay, We're, we're going to get there. But the text of Jeremiah clearly assumes that the law of God under the future inaugurated new covenant is referring to a law that was at the time of the writing of Jeremiah already written, already revealed. He's not saying, I will write some totally unknown, unrevealed law on the hearts of everybody in the future under the administration of Christ. That's not what he's saying. Whatever it is, it's already been revealed. Now, if you're tracking with me, you're going, okay, you're one of those Ten Commandment guys, aren't you? Oh, yeah, so are you. You're either a bad one or a not-so-bad one. But everybody in there knows God is sovereign over our time. God requires us to work, rest, and worship. But I haven't defined the, the law yet, so I don't want to go that, go too far. Um, so the phrase, my law, when referring to God in the Old Testament, when referring to God, uh, sometimes the phrase, my law, doesn't refer to God. It refers to the law of a parent or something like that. So that's why I said the phrase, my law, when referring to God, always refers to something revealed by him to Israel, not only in the book of Jeremiah, but in the whole Old Testament. If you want all the texts, I got them in a footnote that's way too small for me to read, I think even with my glasses. But I can give them to you later if you want. You can come and take a screenshot or something like that. Every single time the phrase is referring to God, my law, it always refers to something already revealed by God to ancient Israel. So the language of God writing, uh, uh, God himself writing a law. Have you ever heard that language before? Something like, I will write my law, God writing a law. Now, part of, part of us might want, be wanting to say, well, yeah, God is the ultimate author of the law of Moses, the scriptures, the written word of God, which, which is true. But if you, you were here a few weeks ago, and even if you weren't, 
uh, if you've read the Old Testament, and even if you haven't, if you've been around long enough, either our church or other churches, you know that this language, and if you don't, I'm telling you now, uh, if you've been here a long time and you don't know this, shame on you or me, or maybe both of us, huh? That language is not novel. You know, if somebody, ancient Jew, reads this, I'll put my law in their heart and, and write, put it, write it on their uh, mind, put it in their mind, write it in their heart, put it in their mind. They're not going to sit there, you know, if you're ancient Jews and I'm Jeremiah reading this to you, you're not going to go, what in the world are you talking about? I think you might go, hmm, Moses wrote some stuff about our fathers and God revealing his law and actually God writing it. Listen to Exodus 31.18. And when he, that is the Lord God, had made an end of speaking with him, that is Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, we know what that is, tablets of stone written with the finger of God, a metaphor for caused by divine power, this, these stone tablets had the ten words, ten commandments, written on them by God. God's the author uh, of that which was written on stone tablets. But the language again, written with the finger of God, God writing a law. What's the law God wrote by his finger or the execution of divine power? Causing, you think of the stones that are nice and smooth, and suddenly, out of nowhere, unless you think, unless you're a Mormon and you think God really does have finger, a finger, therefore he has a thumb and he has a hand and arms and a body and all that stuff. We, we don't want to go there, do we? This is a metaphor. The finger of God is a metaphor for the, the power of God in execution. Here we have this smooth stone tablet and then, I don't know, parts of it, bits of it start flying off and then suddenly, inscripturation is viewed by Moses, and that would have been an amazing thing to see, right? God was causing this thing to come into existence. He was changing the slate, the rock, the stone tablet. He was changing it. He brought it into existence. He was moving it into another form of existence, and what was the form of existence? To express the ten words or ten commandments. He wrote with his finger. So Jeremiah, I think, and many, many others do, clearly teaches that the law of God under the new covenant, I will write my law on their hearts, I will put it in their minds, is a law that both has been and will be written by God. Has been by his finger, by the execution of divine power on stone tablets on Mount Sinai, and will be in hearts. Now, Here's a question, it's not in the notes, but I am going to bring it up. Did anyone before the inaugurated New Covenant era have the law written on their hearts? So one of our senior saints says yes, and the answer is yes. People were saved prior to the shedding of the, of the blood of Christ and the formal historical inauguration of the New Covenant. People actually had their sins forgiven before Jesus came onto the earth in virtue of what Jesus would do. People, uh, people had the work of grace in them. The Holy Spirit did something to souls in the Old Testament. It was all in virtue of what Christ would do. So we could say, in one sense, 
uh, Moses, our brother, Paul, uh, Abraham, our brother, they were in Christ and they received the benefits of this promised new covenant before the benefits were historically procured by our Savior. Our, our confession says that. John Calvin even says that on one of his commentaries. So what's unique about this is that everybody that's in this covenant gets the same work of grace. Law written on the heart, sins forgiven, law put in the mind. Everybody gets it, whether it's before the incarnation, uh, during the incarnate state, or after the incarnate. There's no after the incarnate state. He's, he assumed a body forever. Uh, after the state of humiliation, after, when our Lord ascends into heaven, everybody that is a beneficiary of this covenant has this God-wrought divine work in the heart and also the forgiveness of sins. So Jeremiah clearly teaches that the law of God under the new covenant is a law that has been and will be written by God himself. So with these things in mind, the most plausible answer to the question concerning the identity of this law is that it must be the same law God previously wrote on stone tablets. If you're sitting here listening, you're going, finally, finally said it. Uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. You know, I was telling my wife on the way here that um, I remember reading somebody and said, well, I, I think the intent of Jeremiah was the entire Mosaic law. I will write the entire Mosaic law on your heart. I'll put the entire Mosaic law in your mind. I'm getting some weird faces. It's like, huh, that sounds weird. Because when you go to the New Testament, you got these, you have some really anti-law, here's the word, honey, antinomian, which just means against law. You have some really anti-law passages, but you also have some very pronomian that would be for the law passages. How do you sort that stuff out? To me, if you said the entire Mosaic law is written on our hearts, it would just be all pronomian law texts in the, in the New Testament. There wouldn't be any antinomian. Some of you know I'm, my tongue is in my cheek with the word antinomian now, but against the law kind of passages. So, and, and we'll get to those. There are some, and we gotta be honest about them. So we have this New Testament, you read it, it's, it's against the law of Moses. You have the New Testament, we read it, it's for the law of Moses. How do we deal with that? Um, what's the two words? We distinguish. Remember the distinctions already made in our examination of the law under the Mosaic or Old Covenant? There is this thing written on stone tablets by God put in the put it is the same Hebrew word I will put it in their hearts put in the Ark of the Covenant then the other laws written by Moses were put beside the Ark of the Covenant some of you heard me say this I haven't I can't remember reading this in Spurgeon, but I could hear Spurgeon say, "Methinks something is going on there with the Ark of the Covenant and the and the law of uh, the, the stone tablets put in it." Could it be that God is prefiguring the work of grace by these external ordinances? Of course, you know what I think. No, it just couldn't be. It is, uh, but that's for another time. So here we have this. Um, 
Jeremiah teaching us that the law of God under the new covenant is a law that was written on stone by God and that will be written on hearts by God. Not that it had never been written on hearts before. It had been written on the heart of Adam and Eve. But now this side of the fall, we need help. By the way, you need help that I can't give you. I can tell you about and others can tell you about. You need help, not just from your shrink or from your back doctor. You need help from not, not just this way, sideways. We need help not just vertically either. We need help to come down to us. I have come down from heaven. The bread that came down from heaven to give himself for the life of the world. So Jeremiah teaches us that uh, that law that was written on stone by God will be written on hearts by God. Listen to Exodus 24:12. It identifies the tablets of stone with a law and commandments which I have written. There it is again. That which is on stone tablets, God wrote. Now this is a very important verse this uh, Exodus 24:12. For it uses the Hebrew word Torah, you know what that is, law, to signify what God wrote on stone. What did God write on stone? His law. Now you can, we can also enumerate each of the ten words or ten commandments. Remember a few weeks ago I asked, which form of the Ten Commandments did he put on stone tablets? The one in Exodus or the one in Deuteronomy? And I said, I, I think the best way is to say some sort of reduced essential core essence of each of the Ten Commandments was probably on the stone tablets, something like you, what you probably have in your house or you can still see on courtyard someplace, um, places in public. A reduced version of it because, you know, when you read the Gospels and then you read Paul, you know what both Jesus and Paul do? When they quote one of the Ten Commandments, they don't quote verbatim the entirety of the command as it's contained either in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. They reduce it. Thou shalt not covet. Full stop. Jesus does it. Paul does it. Here's another thing that we'll, um, we might come up to someday if I ever get there. If we don't, now I can say it now. Both Jesus and Paul, when they cite individual commands of the Ten Commandments, they don't always do it. They, matter of fact, I don't think he ever does it in the exact order that we read them either, which for me is, is a sigh of relief because sometimes I forget the order. I don't forget the commands, but I forget the order. So I got biblical warrant for messing up on the order of the commandments if I'm sharing, it, sharing them with others. I think the point there is that it's not necessarily the order, though the order does teach us something. Love to God, love to man. And Jesus reduces the entirety of the Old Testament to those two love commandments, and Paul does as well. There is something to the order of it, but Jesus and Paul can just cite them out of order. And you know what? They don't, there's no footnote in those texts. Oh, by the way, what I mean there is that which God wrote on stone tablets. You just instinctually know what they're talking about. We'll see it elsewhere in Paul's letters. We'll see it specifically in Paul's letters. 
at some point in the near future, hopefully. So here is this Hebrew word Torah, law, being used to signify what God wrote on stone. Now this gives us further biblical warrant to call that which God wrote on stone his law, the law of God. Now that doesn't mean scripture doesn't use the word Torah or the phrase law of God to refer to uh, the writings of Moses. It does. The, actually, I believe the word law sometimes signifies the entire Old Testament. So you're, if you're, you're here going, well, what does it mean? Depends on how it's used in its, in context. Okay. So my law here, it's not the entirety of the Old Testament. It's not the entirety of the Mosaic law. It's that which God had already written on stone tablets. And because of our fallen state, we, and, and, uh, the law is there, but we don't have all the ability that we used to, uh, in our first parents, Adam and Eve. God does a work of grace in the hearts, uh, uh, renovating the souls of all the beneficiaries of these covenants, of this covenant. Now, listen to this. There's three Bible texts. If we add the chronology, and Genesis was over here, and uh, Revelation was over here, going this way, we're going to read three texts. We're going to read Exodus 31, 18. You don't have to turn there, you can if you want. Jeremiah 31, 33, because so far, uh, Concerning my law and that which God writes on stone tablets and hearts, I haven't done a lot of work in the New Testament. We focused on the Old Testament. So we're going to do Exodus 31.18 over here on the timeline. We're going to do Jeremiah 31.33 over here on the timeline. Then we're going to jump over into the New Testament in the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.3. I don't want you flipping around trying to stay up with me. Okay, I got them printed here. I'm going to read them rapid fire. I want you to fill the force of the canonical order, the order in which this language is revealed to us, and what this language refers to. So here it is. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Exodus 31, 18. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 3 later. But that's 2 Corinthians 3, 3, without even explaining what it means. Do you see the connections? They're there. He uses the phrase new covenant, for example, in uh, verse 6 of that, of that passage. So it's clear that he's talking about the, the, the application of the benefits of the new covenant. And I think what he's doing there, he's saying, I'm the minister, I'm the ministerial agent of it, that is, I spoke the gospel to you, but while I was speaking the gospel to you, somebody was doing something in your heart and mind. Remember the statement about Lydia, and the Lord opened her heart, Acts 16, 
to understand the things being spoken. So the minister is the person who speaks the words. The divine cardiologist, as he pleases, uses the words and brings them with power to souls and changes us from the inside out. As we'll see, if and when we get to 2 Corinthians 3, we'll see that uh, Paul is clearly speaking about the effects of grace in the soul through the proclamation of the apostolic gospel that's rooted in the promises of God found in the prophets of the Messiah, even before the incarnation of the Son of God, that which the prophet said would take place for both Jew and Greek. These are primarily Gentiles, remember, This is new covenant fulfillment in the souls of Gentiles. Remember, I made an issue about house of Israel and house of Judah last week in the prophets. And then I said, well, we got to put these prophetic promises in a wider prophetic context. So we looked at the Messiah coming on the face of the earth as promised in the prophets, that he would bring salvation to both the people, the Jews, and the Gentiles. Second Corinthians is, is very Gentilic. You like that word? You can use it if you like. I, th- I don't think I made it up. I think I'm sure I heard it elsewhere. But these are Gentiles that are receiving the promise that the Jewish prophets predicated of the house of Israel and house of Judah. How is that? Well, it must be a form of speaking using ancient language that actually talks about something in the future, Uh, and if you put all the other prophets and the passages we looked at last week, both in the Old and the New Testament, we'd have to conclude what he's promising there is the way the Puritans would say it. This is a promise to the elect of God. This is is a promise to the sheep that Christ talks about in John chapter 10. Those appointed uh, to be his and to be saved in time and space as he lives and dies for them. So considering the language of a text, uh, excuse me, we just read Exodus 31, Jeremiah 31, and 2 Corinthians 3. So considering the language of a text prior to Jeremiah 31, Exodus 31, and a text after Jeremiah 31, 2 Corinthians 3, this forces us to reckon with the fact that the law of God written by God himself was what he wrote on stone and will write on hearts. Remember, in a very unique way, the Ten Commandments comprise the law of God. Remember, we distinguish. There's, there's, there's this... Um, Stone tablets, that which was written on stone tablets, but even those commands that were written on the stone tablets, we saw Moses, the author of Genesis, prior to, and, and Exodus, prior to Exodus 20, we saw him judging people, either favorably or disfavorably, and we do the same when we read about the actions of some of the patriarchs. Moses, uh, Abraham lied, Sarah lied, Abraham lied again, Sarah lied again. Our father was a great liar and a coward saved by the grace of Christ. But we judge their character based on that which ends up on stone tablets, and I think rightly so. But here we have these three texts. It forces us to recognize that that which God wrote on stone tablets, already argued, 
actually predates the, that, uh, uh, the stone tablets themselves. But that which he wrote on stone tablets, here he's promising to write on not stony hearts. Remember Ezekiel? I'll take your stony heart out of you and give you a sensitive one. One that's, one that's pliable. One that bends toward that which is good and right and bends against that which is bad and wrong. Now this side of, you know, being absent from the body or present with the Lord or the resurrection, we don't do it perfectly. But if you're really saved, you want to. How many saved people here go, no, I, I, really, I, I, don't, I don't want to obey God all the time. Well, no, you, you want to. If you don't, get, we'll get the big guys to talk to you later, okay? If, if you don't, there's something really wrong. I don't want to obey God. I want to do my own thing. Don't you realize that that's not the answer to our problems? That's the problem. Creatures made in his image wanting to act as if they're, we're our own creators. And we can determine what's ultimately right and wrong for ourselves because I know what I need best. No, you don't. It's why we don't or shouldn't give our kids whatever they ask for because they don't know best. Seasoned people are going, Father knows best. Yes, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our maker, our creator, our only redeemer. He knows best. But here we have these three passages in canonical order. It seems to me inescapable. Whatever the Ten Commandments actually should look like in our life, what seems inescapably clear is God, through Jeremiah, is saying everybody that gets that benefits from this covenant has the same blessings, and one of them is they get this internal renovation of the soul called writing the law of God on their hearts, putting it in their minds, making them sensitive to things that they used to not be sensitive of. Some of us, not me, of course, uh, when you were young, we're just p- perpetual liars. Right? How was school today? Oh, it's great. I smoked pot in the bathroom. I shamed my parents. It was great, said the little sixth grader out in the middle of nowhere in the 1907, early 1970s. Can you believe? They did that to me. They forced me to smoke pot in sixth grade in the bathroom. Put a gun to my head. Go home. How was school? It was fine. It wasn't fine. Or how about, none of you did this, but I saw a kid write, have a script on his hand one time. I went, what is that? After, after the test, what it was, was the answers. How was school today? Guilty. I did that, by the way. But he... He gave me a bad example. I only followed it as an example because I saw it. How was school today? Oh, it was fine. Liar. Cheater. Or how about this one? Hey, I love you. And I want to show you in more, you know, ways. Fornicator. That's not love. If you love her, marry her. That's the line I got from my father in the faith. Son, he's four years older than me. Son, I'm going to bed. If you love her, 
merrier. Put your money where your mouth is. Then get the goodies. Otherwise, forbidden fruit. We're full. Isn't this building full of ex-liars? You know what? Remember Paul? Such were some of you. Such either are all of us or were all of us to varying degrees and levels. Were we the worst that we possibly could be? No, because we like to hide it, didn't we? But were we really hiding it? No. And you know what? We knew it deep down, but suppressed it over and 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 over. I got more time. And over and over again and again and again and again. We lived it. A lie. Deception. Trying to hide our bad traits from society as much as we could. Actually, some of you didn't try to hide your bad traits from society. Of course, I, I tried to. I did a good job at it. But some of you, did, some of us, we didn't do a very good job of hiding our bad traits from society. We boasted of them. Right? Did things in public and then got, you got busted, didn't you? You got busted, didn't you? Did you ever get busted? I got busted and spent the night in jail at a Barney Fife-looking jailhouse because I was guilty of being a drunkard and a murderer because I put the lives of other people at stake because of my excess in which in something that can be actually a blessing, it became the potential death for my high school friend who didn't die, but could have died. And the lesson to learn from that is don't hit a palm tree in the middle of a small town in western Fresno County while drinking or ever. I was still trying to hide it. But it didn't work very well. I got busted. Guess who was right behind me? Yep. Barney Fife himself. We're all guilty of various commandments. Over and over, again and again and again. We're horrible. (laughs) And yet... In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You think of that. I've said this before. You better be glad I'm, I'm not God. I wouldn't do this. Let's see, forget you. I'm sick and tired of you. Over and over and over, as you read the New Old Testament, Israel was a covenant-breaking, idolatrous nation. There were a lot of sins going on there. Now, granted, they, they got kicked out of the land, okay, and brought back, but still, there's a lot of bad stuff going on there. If I was God, I'd say, I'm going to try it a different way. That obviously didn't work. That's not what God does. God placed the nation of Israel on the earth, gave it its institutions to prepare the world for something way better. Its institutions, sacrificial system, 
priesthood, monarchy, kingship, they all looked forward to an ultimate prophet, priest, and king who would be sinless and would deal with our guilt and the lack of righteousness, who would be, who would have the power and authority to bring us all the way to glory against all odds and all enemies. Not one of them shall fall out of his hand. God had a purpose. God had a plan. And he actually uses the disobedience and sinfulness of his people sometimes to teach his people a lot of lessons. Matter of fact, you read the New Testament, and Paul says, by the way, you know why the Old Testament was written? For our instruction. Don't be like them. Well, my time is up. You know what? My time is up when I say it's up. I'm the preacher. It's up. But I, I hope you, you see what we drilled down in was two words. My law. What does that mean? And I tried to show you what it meant. And we'll have some more contemplation after our break. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the law. We thank you for the wonderful, glorious gospel. We thank you that Jesus is still the friend of sinners, our only hope, our righteousness, our dress, our beauty is to be found in him, not in ourselves. We thank you that you take ugly, mangled sinners like us and you do a work of marvelous renovation and grace in us. And you're going to do it perfectly and uh, um, ultimately even uh, in, in, in a better sense in the days to come in the eternal state. Until then, give us grace. Help us to know the truth and to, uh, to live it and to confess when we don't and receive our final hymn of praise. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.